Well, as we uh, continue on in our series, Becoming Disciples, Following Jesus Through Matthew, and as we get ready to jump into our sermon for this morning, uh, I invite you to join me uh, in a word of prayer. Loving God, uh, we are grateful for this chance to pause the busyness of our lives and be together. We're grateful for the gift of this community and this chance to just sit in the same space together. Uh, we're grateful uh, that as we uh, turn now to uh, wrestle with the scriptures together, that your spirit is here among us. And so, again, as we turn and wrestle with the scriptures together, we yield ourselves to your spirit. And I ask that your spirit lead us and guide us and shape us and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. Amen. This is a picture of my mother, and yes, she was just as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. Uh, despite uh, having raised five boys, I'm uh, ranging in height of 6'1 to 6'9, I might add, uh, she remained this very tender, soft, kind, compassionate, consistent woman uh, who also possessed a, a certain toughness and like take no stuff from no one, not to be tossed around by anyone sort of disposition. Uh, this certainly served her well in raising the five of us, yes, um, and I think it served us well uh, in our upbringing, but it also served her well in her work in the world. Uh, so for most of my life, uh, she worked at a uh, transitional living center. So this was a, uh, a place for people who could commit to like three months to uh, a whole year as they tried to get their feet back under them. So uh, the people that, that lived there um, were either coming out of rehab or coming out of jail or had had hit fina hard financial times and just needed space to like get their feet under them. And so my mom was kind of like the, the one who walked with them throughout this process. And uh, I can't verify this, but in my head, I remember a sign above her desk that read, failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. <laughs> Which feels a little uh, harsh, but is probably a really helpful thing for people who are trying to get their, their life, or get their feet back under them, right? And yet, uh, despite that, I also have this contrasting image of my mom who... Uh, her pager would go off in the middle of the night. Pager because it was the early 2000s, yeah. And like she would rush off for the 30-minute drive to the shelter uh, to go and deal with whatever crisis or whatever uh, situation uh, somebody was facing. Like this, this paradox like really sums up my mom well. And I think it was this paradox that that caused her to have this sort of love for you that. Um, it just made you want to be a better person, <laughs> um, mostly because like you just didn't want to disappoint her or let her down, right? <laughs> um, uh, she um, she obviously shaped me in like a really profound sort of way. Uh, we uh, I was at a, a dinner party recently with some friends, and somebody asked the question of like, what what attributes do you, did you get from your dad, and what did you get from your mom? As I thought more about it, I realized I think all of the loud, obnoxious parts of me I got from my dad. Um, I think that's kind of the Swanson gene. Um, but the, the parts of me that show up when I'm at my best, the like quiet, calm, consistent, steady presence, uh, I got that from my mom. Um, and, and this showed up like in her own sort of like relationship and posture to her faith. Uh, I remember particularly like in high school, like as our world was coming crashing down, she just had this quiet, calm 
steady trust and faith that like God would care for us um, and particularly like care for me uh, as our world was coming crashing down. My mom uh, was, as we might describe, a wise woman. Interestingly enough, uh, within the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, um, there's a particular genre of literature referred to as the wisdom tradition. And within this wisdom tradition, one of the ways that wisdom is often presented is as a woman. Uh, now, before we get into that, uh, when, we, when it comes to wisdom as a whole within this particular wisdom tradition, it's important to recognize that wisdom probably should be uh, um, depicted as with like a, an uppercase W, like a capital W, because it, it, it's this really important sort of thing that like floats in the air that like we, we strive to attain. Uh, in her book, uh, Inspired, Rachel Held Evans describes it as, in the world of the ancient Near East, wisdom wasn't just a virtue. It was a coveted commodity prized for its promise of a full and honorable life. She goes on and says that in the Bible, wisdom is rarely presented as a single decision, belief, or rule, but rather as a way or a path that the sojourner must continually discern amidst the twists and turns of life. And so within this uh, wisdom tradition as a whole, there's one particular book referred to as the book of Proverbs. And this is where we see um, wisdom being personified or depicted as a woman. Interestingly enough, so is her counterpart of folly or foolishness. And so we see this uh, perhaps most starkly in Proverbs chapter 9. So we read, Wisdom has built her house... She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her animals. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Now, this is not a depiction of uh, a woman who is like a homemaker, but rather in Proverbs chapter 8, we have just been told of wisdom's role within the creation of creation itself. Like wisdom is this big thing that was present before anything else was. And God infuses creation itself with wisdom. And so this is a depiction of like creation itself, right? Wisdom has built her house and now is dwelling in this house. She has sent out her servants, girls. She calls from the highest places in town. You that are simple, turn in here. This broad invitation for anybody to come and find wisdom. To those without senses, without sense, she says, come and eat of my bread and drink of my wine that I have mixed. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. It's interesting. Some people have speculated that perhaps uh, Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, so prior to his life and ministry and teaching, the way that he showed up in the world was through this idea of wisdom. The wisdom that's being depicted here in Proverbs, which I think is, is fascinating given like this, um, this imagery of bread and wine here, right? Like this seems to be something that's steady throughout this uh, idea of wisdom into the incarnation of Jesus. But now we jump to folly. The foolish woman is loud. She is ignorant and knows nothing. Because just because you speak doesn't mean you're actually speaking the truth, right? She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the high places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. You who are simple, turn in here. And those without sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in the secret place and secret is pleasant. Notice how she takes essentially the same idea of wisdom, but just... Uh, perverts it, twists it. Um, 
But they do not know that the dead are in there, (laughs) that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So wisdom leads to life and insight, but folly leads to death and to the depths of Sheol. Um, Wisdom shows up as this woman, but folly also shows up as as this woman. And this seems to be uh, part of this Jewish tradition um, of comparing and contrasting wisdom and folly and the body, the experience, the life of a woman. So as we turn then to our parable for today, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, it seems that Jesus in some ways is like piggybacking off of this, this Jewish tradition, this Jewish um, genre of wisdom literature, particularly pic- depicting wisdom in the body of a woman. So we read in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. I think it's important to pause and just acknowledge that Jesus tells us that this parable is going to be like the kingdom of heaven. That, that in some way what he's about to talk about depicts the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the rule, the reign of God. Or to uh, come back to the phrase that we looked at last week, this idea of the life and the age to come. And when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the rule, the reign of God, the life in the age to come, what we're talking about is the life of heaven coming on earth as it is in heaven. That the things of heaven, the, 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 the goodness of God, the grace, the, the peace, the justice, the, the love, the, the, the redemption, the renewal, the reconciliation of all things coming on earth as it is in heaven. And the historic Orthodox Christian teaching has always said that all of these things came to earth in the life of Jesus. That with the, the first incarnation of, of Jesus, that like we began to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, as we look around, we recognize that there's, it's not the epitome of peace and justice and redemption and reconciliation and the renewal of all things, Right? And so, uh, along with that, there's also this sense that like, it hasn't yet come in its fullness. That the fullness of, of the kingdom of God has not yet fully come. And so we come to another sort of heady theological term of this already not yet. The kingdom of God has already come, but not yet in its fullness. And so we find ourselves in this moment, this tension of waiting. And so the way that um, the New Testament, one of the ways that the New Testament depicts this, um, the fullness of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, is Jesus coming and marrying his bride, the church. And so with that and the backdrop, like we turn to the, the parable. So he begins, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealer and buy some for yourself. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came... And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Now, this parable seems to suggest that we have some level of understanding of first century Jewish wisdom customs. But the problem is, we don't know a whole lot about first century Jewish wedding customs, right? But what we do know is that they were a pretty elaborate thing. Like, there were multiple steps along the way. Um, there were several stops along the way getting to the, the, the wedding banquet. And it was like a full-out, elaborate shindig, way more than a couple hours on a Saturday evening in June, yeah? And it reached its sort of culmination with the groom coming and approaching and the bridesmaids coming and greeting him and ushering either him or him and his bride into the banquet where there would be this culmination of the wedding celebration. Now, because there were like multiple steps along the way, it's easy to understand that like he might be a little delayed in the time that he would show up, right? Because if there's three or four stops and he's uh, caught up in the celebration and is a half hour late and there aren't things like cell phones with text messages or cars to make up time, like if he's late at every one of his stops, he could be something like two hours late. And so the job of the bridesmaid then was to wait, to be like expectantly waiting, to be ready for him to show up because you never knew exactly when he would show up. In some ways, it makes me think of my friends who uh, have done foster care. Uh, Like, you put in a ton of work at the front end, right? You do all of the trainings, you get your house ready, you get your house inspected, you have a room ready, you have toys ready, clothes ready, snacks ready, right? And then what do they do? They wait. (laughs) And they wait with their phone on at all hours of the day because they don't want to miss that chance to welcome this opportunity, this gift into their life. And in some ways, this seems to be what Jesus is getting at in this parable. Um, That he's inviting us to be ready, uh, to be attentive, uh, to be waiting expectantly and living into the fullness of the kingdom of God in this present moment. In fact, this comes in this line of, of, of teachings where Jesus has said essentially just that. Like there's multiple teachings in a row where he's saying, be ready, be attentive, be waiting with some level of expectancy. Live into the, the, the fullness of the kingdom of God right here, right now. Why? Because we don't know when it's going to show up. <laughs> when, when Jesus himself in whatever fashion, wherever, however, uh, that will be. When the fullness of the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven. Like, we want to be ready for that. Now, there's a, a decent age gap between me and my, my brothers. Uh, the closest ones are 10 years older than me, then 14, then 18. So uh, the way that they talk about their upbringing and the responsibility, that the, their level of responsibility does not necessarily depict mine, okay? Fair enough. So when my brothers were kids, they tell of the story that my parents would leave in the evening and give them a long list of chores to do. And they didn't do a single one of them. I, I on the other hand, most certainly would have, right? <laughs> But what they would do is they would wait, uh, there was a, a, an intersection, a four-way stop, a quarter of a mile way down the road, and they would wait until they saw my parents pulling up, and then they would jump into action. They would sweep all the dust under the oven and under the, the sink, they, or under the, the fridge. They would do the dishes as quickly as they could, which is absolutely disgusting because they probably weren't very clean. All so that they could avoid what? An angry parent walking in the door, right? <laughs> I think about this story often with these parables of Jesus. And I think the key difference here is that um, we're not dealing with an angry parent (laughs) showing up unexpectedly. Because my brothers could have cared less about having a clean house. But for those of us who have caught a glimpse of the kingdom of God, for those of us who have walked in the way of Jesus and experienced his beauty, we recognize that, like, why would we wait? (laughs) 
Why wouldn't we live this out now? Why wouldn't we live in such a way that, that we experience the, the goodness of God and share the goodness of God with others? Why would we wait to experience peace when we can experience it now? Why would we wait to experience justice when we can experience it now? Why would we wait to experience the redemption, the renewal, the reconciliation of all things when we can begin to live into that right here, right now? See, I think this parable is all about being ready, being attentive, living in light of the kingdom of God right here, right now. But I think it's also about waiting. And waiting is really, really hard. <laughs> I've become more attuned to this, uh, particularly as I have a toddler. Because <laughs> I've learned that I need to be prepared for moments of waiting, right? Because if I'm not prepared for moments of waiting, what ensues? Chaos ensues, yeah? And so, as we sit with this passage, we ask the question, like, what do we do in the waiting? Particularly as we think about, like, this tension that we find ourselves in of this already not yet. What do we do as we wait in this tension of the already not yet? Now, a quick disclaimer. Uh, I'm going to draw a pretty literal interpretation from this parable, which is never a good thing to do um, because they're parables and they're like metaphorical and use all sorts of images. But please trust me on this. Like, I think that this is a fair interpretation. So what do we do in the waiting? We follow the lead of wise women. <laughs> Like, I'm really struck by this parable that Jesus could have used any sort of analogy. That Jesus could have used these mighty, militaristic men tearing down cities. But he doesn't. What's the example that he used? That we follow the lead of wise women. Now, I know for many of us this may feel like, well, duh. <laughs> but if we look at history, this hasn't always been duh. <laughs> and if we look at our present moment, particularly within like the broader church... This most certainly isn't, duh. <laughs> but I really long for it to be, duh. <laughs> because as I think back over my own life and the experiences that I've had, like, I have benefited so greatly from the leading of wise women in my life. Uh, whether that be in my home life with my mom that I described earlier, or in our current home life with the leading of Allie and the way that she shapes and leads us as a family. Uh, whether that be in my schooling experience, whether that be in the neighborhoods that I've lived in, if you know any of the wise women on our street, you know that they run the show, and they know that you are here in this very moment, by the way, uh, not to be uh, creep you out at all. Um, <laughs> but I also think about my church experience and the fact that like, the churches uh, that I've been a part of who have had wise women leading, who have given them the space, who have allowed them to lead into the fullness of who God has created them to be, like, those churches have benefited so, so much. And so now, like, when I see, like, a group of men leading something without the presence of women, making decisions without women, like, I'm really skeptical because I know what's going on in my own head and in my own heart, right? <laughs> and if I feel like I, I need the, the leading of wise women in my own life, like, I think it's only fair to assume that we need the leading of wise women in our shared collective life together. Now, I know what our cultural moment, uh, I, I know the, the cultural moment that we're in. And so, like, let me clarify something. Uh, to say that we follow the leading of wise women, to say that women are wise, that they possess a divine sort of gift of wisdom, does not mean that when men are foolish and ignorant and should not be followed, okay? 
see, we often think of our world as something like a zero-sum game, that there is scarcity present, that the world functions as like a pie. And so to give somebody a piece of pie means that there's less pie for me. And so that, that would say that there's something like, to say that, that women are wise and we should lead them means that men are ignorant and we shouldn't lead them, or that we shouldn't follow them. But the world isn't a zero-sum game. But the world is one of abundance. And that means that there's space and there's room enough for all of us to lead uh, together. Uh, I, I, I recently listened to somebody uh, riffing on um, Genesis 1.27, which uh, reads, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this person was saying that apparently when God chose to like, express God's self in the world, God felt like God needed both male and female to do so, right? And they said that like, when we, we fail to follow the leading and the wisdom of women, like, we have missed out on a large majority of the way that God has chosen to show up in our world. So uh, to the men in the room, to me, like, we have a unique gift to offer. But so do our sisters. And uh, I think it would do us well to follow their wise leading. This isn't always assumed. This isn't always named. And so like, I think it's important for us to take time to name it explicitly and to say it explicitly. So what do we do in the waiting? What do we do in this, this tension that we feel of the already, not yet? We follow the lead of wise women to point us to Jesus, to help us to know what to do in these moments when like, we experience some peace, but like, there's still war happening on the other side of the world. When we have experienced the justice of God within the community of Christ, and yet we look around and we recognize that justice has not yet fully come on earth. What do we do in this tension? We follow the leading of wise women as they point us to Jesus and as they point us to the kingdom. Uh, so uh, up to this point, I have yet to give us a prompt for our discussion time, but I'm going to today, okay? So uh, as we get ready for our discussion time, uh, I want to suggest that this be sort of our prompt. Uh, I'd love for us to share about uh, a wise woman or wise women in our life uh, who have either pointed you to Jesus, like what it means to walk in the way of Jesus, how to love in the way of Jesus, um, or who have like, helped you understand what to do in the waiting. As like, you, you sit in that tension of, like, we've experienced the goodness of the kingdom of God, and yet we don't know what to do as we wait for the fullness of the kingdom of God. So as we, we turn now to sing, uh, maybe in the back of your mind you can be getting these stories ready, and uh, maybe we can uh, share these stories and celebrate um, uh, these wise women in our life. Amen. <laughs>